Brought to you by the creators of Independent by Design, Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation. This is the Indie by Design podcast, the show about game design and those who play a part in it. In each episode, we sit down with interesting people to talk about them, their work, and their outlook on games. This episode features Introversion Software, creators of Uplink, Darwinia, Defcon, and Prison Architect. Formed in 2001, Introversion was founded by three friends not long out of university. Together, Chris DeLay, Mark Morris, and Tom Arundel pooled their varied skill sets and talents to help fuel the creative process and to enter a competition to write a business plan, the grand prize for which was £10,000. It was to prove a pivotal moment in the fledgling company's history. While they didn't win the competition, it did enable the founding members to begin to establish the creative and managerial blueprint that they would use over the next decade and a half. In that time, Introversion Software has grown through the many lows and highs of independent game development against the ever-changing backdrop of this creative medium. Here, Mark Morris talks about Introversion's outlook on game creation, the dangers of design by committee, and how the company's greatest strengths have come to light over time. He starts by outlining the company's early days and how the roles of the three founders, alongside that of company co-director John Nottenbelt, were hashed out in the early 2000s. Chris had been working on Uplink uh, basically in his spare time. I lived with Chris and another guy called Tom. Uh, we were pals, basically, still are. Uh, and he'd been working on Uplink whilst uh, Tom and I had been going out and just, you know, living the, living the dream in London or rather getting drunk every night and trying to chat up girls and Chris was actually at home being productive. And there was a competition to win uh, £10,000, I think, for the best business plan. And Tom had, he wanted to be an entrepreneur and he had studied all of the business uh, modules. Uh, he was an electrical engineer by training, but he'd studied, you know, shareholding and he understood all these sorts of things. So he knew what IPO stood for and, and all the rest. And so I said to the guys, look, let's have a stab at writing this business plan and see if we can win £10,000 and, and then and then that'll be that. And that was kind of the best way of defining my role for the next sort of 16 years at Introversion, that, that I'm the guy that doesn't really have any ostensive talent. You know, I'm not particularly good in, in any particular area, but Chris has always been the creative director. I was, I was chuckling to myself today as something was going on and I was just considering him, labeling him the supreme creative an introversion, um, because he has always been, it's his personality, very, very focused, very creative, and all of those positive and negative aspects that uh, occur in creative people, mm. so incredibly wed to particular ideas, um, very strong in his direction, you know, if he's not happy with something, he, he will simply tell you in no uncertain terms that he's, you know, do it again, it's not working. Um, Tom, when Tom started out, and the reason I'm not talking to talking about Johnny is because Johnny joined us a little bit later. So Johnny is, again, a pretty easy guy to discuss. Johnny is a very, very smart uh, technical uh, guy, you know. Mm. So if we've got a difficult technical problem, Johnny is very good at solving those difficult technical problems. And Johnny has always fulfilled that, that role. Now, Tom's role has sort of changed a bit. Tom started off doing sort of biz dev for introversion, mm -hmm. but he is not a creative guy. He doesn't really, 
enjoy the uncertainty of being within a creative industry. And, and I think fairly early on, he had decided that introversion was a lost cause, you know, that, that you cannot make money in this crazy way that Chris and I were trying to make money. Mm. So he, he went off and started off his own um, enterprise, which I somewhat derogatorily refer to as a widget business. Uh, but Tom, Tom doesn't see that as a derogatory term. So his business, uh, I don't particularly want to go into it here, but it's based around uh, defining a business process, which is very easy to understand, that meets the needs of the customer, that you can cost effectively, you know how much profit there is. So work goes in one end of the of the, of the money pipe, you mm -hmm. crank the handle and profit comes out of the other end. Whereas introversion is, is completely the other end of the, the spectrum. So what happened with Tommy is he, as he, as he was developing both businesses, he became very skilled in business process. So the accounting side of things, reports to HMRC, um, the finance mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. And that is what he does for us now. So he, he kind of um, slipped into that role. So he's, he's very, very good sanity check. So often in our industry, we get very interesting questions like, um, what would the effect be of allowing users in a particular environment to trade their, their keys digitally, mm -hmm. something like that. You know, what happens if we had a secondary market? Um, that's a, a sort of technical and rational question that Tom is very good at, uh, at, at helping us answer. And so I've, I always consider myself to be, I don't want to say the leader, of introversion I think it's a kind of coupling between Chris and I that's that's what we've fallen into in the early mm. days I saw myself as Captain Picard right that's, <laughs> that's that's and I thought that leadership was about saying to the guys well mate we need another another point eight out of our warp drive you know mm -hmm. and then the warp drive guy goes yeah fine there you go you know, that, that was it. Yeah. And I learned fairly quickly that actually it's a lot more complex than that. And most of the time people can't, well, it's not they can't deliver, but they certainly can't deliver the impossible. And so over time, I've become a lot less dictatorial in the way that I run things and a lot more collaborative with mm. Chris. But there are times when we revert, and it's happened recently actually on, on a new project, where Chris sort of got a little bit stuck um, with not wanting to take responsibility for for a launch date you know he's got a big mm -hmm. list of bugs he's got a big list of stuff that he wants to do and he kind of wanted someone to say to him that is the launch date you know mm -hmm. and that is the date that you're going to hit now and then once he's been told that he can kind of crack on and, and do it and it sounds a bit patronizing it sounds like you know I, I boss him around but i think it's just partly just the way people are sometimes that you need to have a boss mm. you know? and and I try and be all things to to all people in, in in the firm and obviously you know the other thing that I do my role is um, sort of sales and marketing so I've always been the big loud mouth up on the stage we don't do that as much as we used to because I don't think it's as relevant now as it as it used to be but mm. that's been something that I've I've kind of owned at introversion so um, the strategy and the, and the way forward is basically Chris and I, you know, the day-to-day -day operations is, um, is kind of Chris with a bit of me doing production. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then every now and again, it's, you know, just grabbing hold of the whole thing and saying, right, you lot, this is what's going to happen this week when, when things uh, need to have that sort of level of grip approached. Mm. So it, it's been a combination of our natural talents. And then we did a lot of work in the early years looking at um, Myers-Briggs personality indicators. So we've got mm-hmm. an understanding of, of our different types. Uh, although we do often forget and still have massive rows, I've, I've got I've moved my Myers Briggs book so it's on my desk, so I realise you know Chris is not being a massive dick. It's just that I'm not he's not understanding what I'm trying yeah. to communicate with him, and, and I'm not understanding what he's trying to communicate with me. So and and a, a lot of that understanding of our different personalities, that's that's something as well that I've learned and found quite surprising actually that your your personality has a huge impact on on how you lead a team. And the four of us at the top all have different personalities, very different mm. personalities. And I think that brings an incredible strength to it when we are in step with each other. Yeah. When we fall out of step with each other, it, it can make it harder to get back into step, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm. Um, but when everything's running nicely, you know, we've, we've, I kind of feel like we've got all bases covered. That sounds like a wonderful way to assemble a team. It sounds like if you're going to create a team, you do want people that are slightly different, that have different skill sets, that have different specialties. That that makes perfect sense. And I imagine when things are going well, perhaps, um, again, from an external perspective, the last few years with Prison Architect being the, the kind of landmark title that it has been for you guys. But I imagine that when things are going well, it, it's perhaps an, certainly an easier um, thing to to an easier system to work with him but having those personal relationships as you alluded to the fact that you guys live together and were already friends is there also an element of does that ever make it tougher because is there ever a feeling that things are more personal than the issue that you're actually dealing with is kind of outside baggage ever brought into the boardroom as it were yeah i i think it was in the early days you know, I think it was it was brought in a lot in the early days, but um, all four of us have had a have just been naturally, I think, very very good at being able to separate the decisions that are being taken in relation to the company from our friendship. All of us, you know, we, we've had it doesn't happen now, but in the early days we had extraordinary arguments in the boardroom about what we should do next, and and the argument you could probably guess it was mostly over money, you know, in the mm. early days mm. about how the company was going to be divided and how it was all going to be split up and and all of those sorts of bits and pieces, and uh, we had incredibly complex systems running at one point that you know managed to um, just dissolve away, mm. um, and but we were always able to go and have a drink the end of the day and and remember that the guy that you've just been furiously arguing with actually is just your your buddy mm. and sees things a little bit differently and 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 often you'd find that actually what you're arguing about is there's an easy solution in there it's just mm. that you didn't quite understand what he was worried was going to happen and, and he didn't quite get what what you were saying um it doesn't happen now i don't think i, I think that we're we're long enough in the tooth, you know, we've been on the roller coaster for 15 years mm. for the business not really to encroach on us now. I, I think we are all pretty happy with the direction that introversion is, is going in. You know, none of us, mm. I think this is another big part that 
certainly early on, Chris and I were not quite aligned with what we wanted introversion to look like. And we are now, you know, and mm. the same is true with Tom and, and Johnny. We all understand what this business looks like. And there's no desire from any of us to, uh, to sort of grow it, if you like, in terms of mm. uh, people. You know, we want to grow it in terms of the number of titles that we, that we get out there. And obviously, we want to grow it in terms of the revenue that we're generating and the number of players we've got. But we're all pretty much lined up. So I, I can't see there being a, a, another earth-shattering rift mm. occurring. I mean, maybe if somebody came along, you know, something ridiculous came along out of the blue and said, I want to buy introversion, I'll give you £100 million. <laughs> you know, that probably wouldn't cause an argument because I think we'd all sell. But mm. there would be a figure at which it would be enough for me and not enough for Chris, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes, definitely. And that's, um, do you think, is that an easier place to be working from and towards, that, that kind of that comfortableness, or comfort rather, with each other, and that uh, kind of harmonious vision of where you want the company to go? Is that an easier thing to feel or to achieve once you've had some success behind you, or is it not that simple? No. I don't think so. I, I, I think that what you want out of life is quite unique to you. And, mm. and entrepreneurs, I think one of the things they have in common is they all have quite a strong idea of what they want in life. Um, people that aren't entrepreneurs sort of accept a nine-to-five job. And I'm not, I'm not belittling it at all. Mm. They, that's what they want. They're happy to be sort of bobbing along on, on someone else's ocean, if you like. Mm. Whereas entrepreneurs aren't like that. They, they want to steer the ship. And whether they want to steer the ship in a sort of big cheese leadership way or whether they want to steer the ship in a, in a, in a creative way, it's still a very, their own very strong idea of, of why they want to do something. Um, and Tom is a good example of that. Tom and, Tom and Chris and the, the sort of split early in the days. When we didn't have any money, Chris didn't mind because he would still, well, he, he didn't like it, we didn't have any money, but he would get up in the morning and he would make his video game. Mm. And that's all he wants to do. That's all he's ever wanted to do. Whereas Tom wanted to drive a Ferrari and go snowboarding in mm. the Alps and, and, you know, all the rest of it. That, that was what Tom's life was. Not, he's not particularly money hungry. I'm not, I don't want to give that sure. impression. Yeah. But he, he enjoys relaxing. You know, he enjoys and he relaxes by doing physical activities, but that's what he wants to do. You know, mm. he wants to, to go and drive around Europe or he wants to go kite surfing or he wants to go, he wants to be, you know, like a, a playboy. Mm. That's, and he wants the company to be something that he's set up, he's, he's done hard and it, and it just kind of ticks over in the background without a huge mm. amount of, of, of effort. Mm. For me, um, I'm a sort of combination of, of both of them uh, in that I quite enjoy having some cash, you know, being able to spend it and, and all the rest of it. But I'm also, uh, I very much enjoy the getting something new out into the world, you know, mm. a new game that nobody's played before. And suddenly, the Prison Architect, however many players it is now, two million plus, you know, two million people have played that game and it's brought some joy into their world. And that that's what I'm going to be thinking about on my deathbed. We are getting to you now, aren't we? But that's that's what I'm going to be thinking about, right? I'm not going to be looking around me and thinking, oh, I've got a nice house and, you know, that's all, that's all lovely. I'm going to be thinking about the people that played our games and loved them and, and enjoyed them. And so I think that without that 
and, and whether you've got money or not, that's, your, that's kind of your goal, you know, mm. the, the lifestyle that you want to have. And we don't have an office. We're never going to have an office now because nobody that works at Introversion wants to commute into anywhere that we would have a co-located office. Mm. You know, it just, it just doesn't work for us. We're not guys that, that want to spend an hour on a train every day. You know, we're, we're, we're comfortable with this. But what you want out of life is got nothing to do with how much money you've made. It, it, you think mm. it does before you make some cash, but actually you are the same person afterwards, you know? So if you, and in some cases, I think that money can actually make it harder for you because what you missed was that um, the, the, the team of people all around you, you know, all pushing in one direction, desperately trying to get something out of the door. Mm. You know? and, mm. I, and I think that what wealth gives you is the freedom to sort of see it like that, to understand what, what, when, when was I happiest in life, you know? And I think before you've made a bit of cash, you, your view might be a little bit, oh, I've got to make the mortgage payment. I wish I didn't have to. You know, it sort mm. of clouds, it clouds your view. Whereas afterwards you, you get, nothing changes, you know, you still, world is full of problems. But it's just slightly different set of problems. You realise what I want is, you know, to work in a big team of people or, 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 or whatever it is. Mm. Mm. Well, that's that's sort of towards the area that I was driving at, I guess, because with somebody like, um, you know, the, the obvious headline case being somebody like Notch, who made a game in the early days, it seemed very much because he wanted to make Minecraft. That was something he was driven to do uh, and then ended up with a with with just a, a mind boggling amount of money. And I've read some things with him previously or since then, rather, and it does seem a little bit, just from the, the little that I've read, that he's slightly directionless. He doesn't have the same drive that he had before, it seems. I mean, that he that may not be the case at all. But And so I, I'm wondering if that is the... For those indie devs who are who are just starting out, or even for those ones who have been going a while and, and don't feel like they are making the... Um, the financial uh, leaps that they would like to be or, or not being rewarded in that sense. Um, it's it's that driving at that idea of do things change after you have, quote unquote, made it. Um, yeah. It, it, it sounds like it's, that's not really the, well, the primary well, concern. It's, it's not why you do the job. Yes and no. You know, the, 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 the difficulty is there comes a point uh, in most people's lives, when you're a student, you can um, you can live on nothing, right? Tins of baked mm. beans, it's mm. fine. But there comes a time when you know you get a girlfriend, you you're starting to have a family. It's no longer you're no longer able to just work from home and make games. You know, it, it you need to be putting money on the table. You, you, you know, you need to be looking after your family. So there there is a sort of minimum level that it needs to kick in at. Um, in order for you to to, to have a, a, a acceptable quality of life. Now, mm. there'll always be people who who don't need much. You know, there'll always be people who just do bounce around the world in tiny little, I don't know, tiny little homes or whatever, coding, because it, it's, it's just mm. what they enjoy doing, and they, and they you know, they're never going to make it. But for other people, I think there is a sort of minimum level that you need to start achieving. Um, otherwise, life's just not going not gonna to work. But I think nowadays the, the the great thing about the indie scene is that there are more opportunities for the indie lifestyle than there used to be. 
You know, there's there's lots more freelancers. There's a so-called gig economy, if you like. You know, we're seeing that in our industry now, where we can reach out and find programmers and artists and uh, well, in producers and things. You know, who who are, are trying to go down the indie route, trying to to ship their own thing. It's not really working out. Okay, I'm going to be a coder for hire for a few months. You know, now I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying that at all. I don't mm. think it is. But that idea of being a freelance coder in the games industry didn't really exist in 2001. Oh, I certainly didn't know about it. Mm. Um, uh, and it, and it's kind of it's kind of sprung up. So I think it's tricky. You know, I think it's yeah. I think it's tricky. I would I would much rather be in in Mark's shoes in 2017 than in Mark's shoes in 2008. You know, mm. when I was firing the company and shutting everything down, and you know was renting a you know, pokey little flat in London. Mm. Um, where I am now is, is a, much better, a much better place. So it, 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 I think it would be disingenuous to say, if you, if you meet with success, you'll still have a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's definitely better. It's definitely better. Yeah. And, I, and I think, you know, I don't know much about Notch, really. But I, I do think that he wasn't surrounded, or it would appear to me, that he wasn't surrounded by people that could sort of help him effectively deal with that wealth mm. and keep his head in the game, you know, keep his head mm. doing what what he what he needed to do. Because I I think the same thing. He's 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 lost his focus and direction, and um, that's tough, you know. And and that's where you need somebody else to, to try and ground you a bit but I can't really talk about him because I don't really know anything, mm. anything, know anything about him but yeah, no. you know, I just sort of vaguely think that that might be what's going on yeah and that's I guess that comes from for you guys it comes from having this kind of internal support network that um, whether one of you needs a kick up the backside or needs a shoulder to cry on in tough times or whatever it might be that you have that with each other which is uh yeah and i think the other core thing is that we're we're quite mixed in our in our interests you know tom mm. and johnny and myself really are not massive gamers you mm. know this this is the other thing chris is you know obviously he's he's a, he's a huge gamer plays all the time but for the rest of us and we're seeing this to a certain extent that as um, we start having some kind of excess income, we almost have two board meetings now. You know, we have an introversion board meeting where we discuss introversion, and then we have another one where we, where we look at the other things that we might want to be doing, you know, mm. whatever investments they, they might be. So it's the same team, same trusted group of people, but it, with a completely different um, focus and, and operation. And if introversion had enjoyed the kind of levels of wealth that Notch had, uh, we would be like, engaging with SpaceX and stuff, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just what we would be doing, you know, we, we'd mm. definitely be having introversion and Chris would be doing that and I would still be involved with, with producing and things and, and Johnny would be there, but we would also be heavily invested in some other um, industries that we mm. all think are interesting things to be involved with, you know, yes. and, and we, would, we would flourish, I think, in that, um, you know, in that environment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just um, a couple of billion required or whatever ridiculous. Well, it doesn't matter, so, does it? I mean, yeah. I'm happy. I'm happy with my life. Give, give yes, me, give, give it. You know, it. It doesn't. Once you can, you know, you get to a certain level and it's gravy. You know, mm -hmm. and you, you have to have that focus. I think. Mm -hmm. 
um, there's always a, a bigger car or a bigger house or, or, or something else, but you do need to keep things pretty tightly focused, I think, mm. and, and try to count your blessings. And yeah. um, Prison Architect moved me away from being in a position where I had to worry about my mortgage to, to not, you know? Yeah. And I think once that's happened in life, it's your pretty nasty miser, you know, if you carry on <laughs> worrying about money after that. <laughs> <laughs> And that's, I mean, and part of, of course, that didn't happen by accident. It's not a coincidence that Prison Architect um, has been that, the title that has done that for you. And that's because it's a incredibly well-designed, deep game that gives, it scratches an awful lot of itches for people, I think. And, and the various different elements of it uh, mean different things for different people. So the, the kind of tutorial campaign side of it is perhaps for one side of player it's certainly the, the side of the game that i derive more from um than the sandbox even though perhaps 90 percent of the game is is the sandbox but it's it all of that works i think because of that strong central hook and i know that's something that we've we've discussed before um but it's something that's looking back through your games generally they have that strong hook be it thematic or sometimes even just the aesthetic element of it is a is something that is immediately interesting um i know you've talked before about how you think that's a very important thing you think it's important for particularly even more so nowadays for uh, an independently developed game with a, a limited marketing budget to have that strong hook that makes people want to talk about it i wonder would you go so far as to say that it's in some cases there is a case to be made for starting with a hook and building a game around it or does the gameplay does the, the mechanics and the, the the building blocks of it do they always take precedence do you think i i think that you can get into trouble if you go in that direction you know if you you find a hook or a little prototype or something that you think is very, very cool, and then try to bolt a game onto it afterwards. Mm. Uh, that's exactly what we did with a, um, a now-abandoned title called Subversion, mm. where Chris had found a, a paper on um, city generation, and he implemented uh, this paper fairly quickly. I think it took him about a week, and he was able to generate cities uh, and you know we had some tech demos and things up. Uh, he likes to he likes to put things in the public domain quite early because I think he's worried that I'm going to cancel all of his interesting projects. So <laughs> so he, he likes to try and rally a bit of support. Um, and anyway, we did this with Subversion, and then it, it took about four or five years, I think, of working on that on and off, and him putting quite a lot of time in to sort of realise that there was no game. He couldn't find a game to mm. to leverage that technology. Mm. So I think that. Um, you're right. You know, I, I do think that the hook for us, it's a few things. It's a it's a vector rather than a, a single identifiable feature. But I think mm. the real world theme um, of our most successful games, uh, you know, Uplink Hacking, Defcon Nuclear War, Prison Architect, Prisons, you know, they've all been very strongly themed. And you're right, the aesthetic, as soon as you look at Uplink or Defcon or, or to a lesser extent, I think, PA, um, you know what that game is immediately mm. but i think at the same time that it's almost like a holy trinity that you have to have good gameplay in there as well people have to be enjoying it and not feeling like 
there's a game bolted onto this particular concept, you know, this, mm. this technology. And when all, when, when the hook and the game is equally important at the top, that's when you get something that's, that's really strong. If you're interested in gaining more insight into game design and game designers, be sure to check out Independent by Design Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation. This hardback book, written by us, Stace Harmon and John Robertson, gives a peek behind the scenes of game design through original interview-based written content alongside pages of compelling artwork, concept sketches and design documents. Introversion software feature in the book, alongside the likes of Lucas Pope, who created Papers, Please!, Jessica Curry, the BAFTA award-winning composer of The Chinese Room, and InXO Entertainment, the team responsible for Wasteland 2 and The Bard's Tale 4, alongside many more. Go to IndieByDesign.net to get your copy today. On our website, you'll also find written editorial content to enjoy and more episodes of the Indie by Design podcast. You can find us on Twitter, where we tweet as Indie by Design, and on Facebook.com forward slash Independent by Design. If you like what we're doing and have time to leave us a short review on iTunes, that greatly helps our visibility. On to the second part of our discussion with Mark Morris now, where Mark begins by pondering how Introversion's longevity has helped inform its approach to making games, and why it's important to give yourself a chance to learn from experience. One of the things I've been thinking about recently is how old we are as a company. Mm. And there aren't that many games companies that are as old as us. And I think about that, you know, EA and Activision and some, some big ones, but there aren't that many indies. And I do think to myself, part of our ability to hit on Prison Architect, I don't see it as PA success. I see it as sort of introversion success, that if you let us make five, years, uh, five games, one of them will be a, be a hit. And our plan now is to release another five, year, uh, another five games over the next 10 years or so and mm. hope that we hit another PA in that in that time um mm. if we don't we've probably got you know another we've got loads of games in this you know and the the plan is to stick together but all too often you see you see gamers or developers they they try something it doesn't work out for them and then that's it you know they all mm. go in their super great and then they create a new company and you think well hang on what happened to the you know the company that you created? You had fans, you had a game, you're a you're a proven team because now you've got two games out, not one game out. Uh, you're starting to build a brand. Um, people may come to your original sort of poorly performing title if you do well. I mean, when we hit Prison Architect, of course, we had an uplift uh, across everything that we'd we'd done in the past. Mm. And I and I do think about this sometimes as you know, I talk to indies. Oh, hi Mark. You know that one didn't go so well. We started a new company. Why? Mm. You know, why? Why? Because was it, I, I very much doubt it was the, it could have been the structure of the company that was holding you back, maybe. But I think it's more likely that you just didn't quite have the experience and something went wrong with the game and it didn't work out so well. But I think the ability to stick together as a team of people through those tough times, including, I mean, talking about our team, we had a, a bad time, and Johnny, one of the directors, he, he went back uh, to work for a big tech firm um, for a while. So mm. Johnny wasn't on board full-time, but he was still there helping us out for the odd 6 a.m. meeting and you know giving a bit of advice to us in a couple of hours in, on the weekend because he wanted to stay involved. And then it worked out for him because, obviously, when Prison Architect started, 
taking off. He, he no longer needed to work for the big tech firm, and I think he gladly handed his notice in. Mm. But that, it, there doesn't seem to be that desire to work through a failed situation with your, with your company mm. um, and, and rebuild, you know, and I, and I yeah. think that that's um, harmful. And that's, I, I don't know, this is perhaps a wild leap now, but is, do you think that's anything to do with the way that success is perceived in wider terms? So we, there's, you know, in, in those 15, 16 years since 2001, um, there has been a rise of things like talent shows on TVs and things like the Big Brothers and the yeah. X Factors and all of that kind of thing. And it does seem... Um, there's an element of, of in what you were just saying there for me in that that it some people feel that if they have one shot at something and it doesn't work out then that's it it wasn't meant to be that's the end of it rather than knuckle down and kind of put in the hard graft it, I, I'm not do you think there's anything in in that that people are less willing well, less wanna, willing to yeah, work I, I mean that sounds I a bit that, but, unfair but, but I, um, I'm not a Sociologists, uh, I'm not going to blame sure. the talent shows. I don't know what effect they've had on lots of people, but I was watching a show, uh, it was a documentary, and, and this uh, individual, he was quite a famous guy, Giles, something, or I think his name might have been, had, had written a book, and he'd always wanted to be a novelist, you know, and mm. he'd written this book. He, he'd sort of carved himself out a, a semi-reasonable career uh, as a celebrity, you know, doing... I don't know, the news, that kind of thing, bits and bobs. Anyway, he'd written this, this book, and he'd got a publishing deal off the back of him, you know, being a bit of a celebrity. Mm, mm. And his book had completely flopped. I think it had sold about 19 copies. Mm. And he had really struggled with this. And, and about, it was about 10, 15 years later, he'd gone back to uh, try and unpick what had happened. So, fly on the wall... You know, looking mm. at him, I'm, I'm, mm. I'm picking this, and quite a raw film. He was talking about how devastating it was to him that he he had in his mind arrogantly that he was going to be the next, I, I don't know, Jeffrey Archer or whatever, mm. and mm. just just wasn't, and he and he couldn't bring himself to write another book. And what was interesting is that he went around and he interviewed J.K. Rowling and Jeffrey Archer and a, a couple of other authors, and sort of said to them, how did they find their motivation and and how did they carry on? And they basically said, well. It doesn't really matter. The the numbers aren't important to you. You just are an author, mm. so there is no motivation. You just write your next book. You know that's mm. what that, that's what happens. If you're an author, you write books. You're not an author. You know that was the. Mm. I'm mm. not sure if anyone actually ever said it to him, but that was the reality of it. He liked the idea of being an author, but he wasn't one. Mm. And it, it's the same about game game design. You either you can do it professionally, of course, and you know just do it from nine to five if you want. But if you are a, a game developer, it will not matter to you how many sales you have of that particular title because there'll be an, the new idea inside of you bubbling out, bubbling mm. to come up, and you'll, you'll turn to it and you'll carry, on, you'll carry on doing it. And that's how I look at it. You know, it's not... Um, another example I give you, I went to see Fun Loving Criminals the other day and you know, it wasn't, there weren't that many people watching the Fun Loving mm. Criminals. I thought, These, this band was enormous in the 90s. You know, they were like mm. an arena band. How come I'm watching them in this is wonderful little intimate gig in Southampton? And talking to a couple of people, they said, well, they haven't done anything since. I go, that's true. But these guys are true musicians because even though they haven't written any more material, they're still there 
they're still playing to an audience of three or four hundred when they were probably playing to an audience of thirty or forty thousand at, mm. at that height. Mm. But it's not no one they're not saying where's my motivation to get out there. They just are musicians. You know, it it's the commercial world, the industry, everything everything around it is almost not important you know you either are a game designer or not mm. and and mm. if you are and you keep plugging away at it and sometimes you go back and do another job for a while i don't mind and you but you'll be coding in your spare time you'll be coding on your commute you know you'll be coding when you're on holiday when chris mm. goes on holiday he stops coding on whatever project he's supposed to be working on for introversion and he, and he works on a new a new thing you know that's how he relaxes by doing his day job you know just in a different um in a different zone and and that I think is is sort of the way things are. You know, mm. you either mm. have it inside of you, like you know, Molyneux, another great example, despite his failings or whatever. You know, he's out there making games, I think, or uh, you know, leading teams of people making games has different mm. styles. Mm. Um, but I think that is that is how it is you know you and you might learn about yourself you might learn the unpleasant truth that actually i don't think i am a game designer when it came down to it you know because i don't code anymore you know i I tried it for a while but i gave it up whereas if it's in in you then nothing will stop you coding Mm. yes i think that's a a very interesting take on that actually And and it does feed in uh to or rather it is borne out by the way that um, Introversion's history has, has transpired. And I know that with certain titles, Chris has taken time off, as you mentioned, he's, he might have taken time off from one particular project to then um, be it a week or a month or whatever it is, then work on something else. And it, it does seem like he's never not working on something. I mean, the two of the recent uh, games that, that I was reading about, and I think you had uh, a couple of game shows last year, um, both Scan and Somber and um, and Wrong Wire as well. Yeah, they sounded like, from what I understood, they sounded like they were from a time when Chris needed to take a bit of time off uh, from Prison Architect from from doing the 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 rigid update structure of Prison Architect um, and took some time off with maybe just one or two of the other guys from the team and worked on these projects for a month just to get these prototypes out there which seems like quite a healthy way of doing it in terms of not only giving him a break um, from that big intense project he's working on at the time but also it then helps feed the forward momentum of the company because there's always something else there to move on to or that you can go back to or to look at and say well look we've got this in the bag we could develop this i wonder is that something that you personally is that something that you feel is a is a a good way of working or does that create distractions like you know for you personally is it sometimes you want to say well can we just get this this game finished before we start yeah it's it's a good question and that was certainly what it used to be like, you know, when, when we were much smaller and Chris was responsible for pretty much everything, you know, I got very frustrated if he took some time off to um, work on a different, uh, a, a different prototype. But he didn't do it very often, to, to be honest. Mm. Mm. And um, he would often joke that I saved the company today and he saves it tomorrow. <laughs> you know, that was his, his, his way of looking at it. But with, um, with PA, it, it, it's back to this sort of maturity and of, of learning, getting to know each other better and being able to communicate more, you know. So 
we we never missed a beat for prison architect you know he didn't we didn't mm. not deliver mm. he just he told me one day i need to have a break of this and and i understand it because it, it's we've been working on that or he'd been working on it for sort of five six years in the end and mm. you just get bored you know creatively mm. you just start start seizing up so i i understand that we all need to get up and uh it's the sort of development equivalent i think of walking around the garden for a bit you know to, mm -hmm. to to clear your head so so i fully support him in doing it uh but it's just we've got to be a bit careful of the timing you know so um but he's he's pretty much on in step now with the timings that, that things need to need to occur now but what has happened and i'll be quite honest about this there are it is a lot easier nowadays to make games than it used to be uh, unity has really leveled the playing field mm. and we showed scanner and uh wrong wire last year and in the intermediate period there have been some other uh bomb defusal games that have come mm -hmm. about now i'm not going to accuse them of copying um wrong wire because i don't think that they necessarily did right it was just a bomb defusal game it's a good idea mm. for, for a game someone else has come along and, and, and done it but it's had quite a profound effect on Chris's ability to crack on. Um, mm. And that is something that we're going to need to manage in the future. So we're going to need to manage um, whether we show the games, the prototypes, mm -hmm. early, and how long it is between us doing a prototype and then putting it into development. So... Um, I think we're going to do more prototypes, actually. I think that's going to be an, uh, an increase thing at Introversion mm. rather than just sort of lurching from one project to the next. Because I think that um, we can do a slightly better job. We, we want to get back to a prison architect style development if we can, you know, because it had so many benefits. Um, mm. And I think Chris and I are both really missing it, having spent this time on, on Scanner Sombra and some of the issues we're, we're facing again now, really difficult issues to, um, to try and overcome. Like, just like a launch date, you know, mm -hmm. if you get a launch date wrong, you're done. Whereas with monthly updates, you, you've got a launch every month, you know, so something huge comes out and you get lost in the noise, doesn't matter. You get picked up next month or, or the month after, you know, so just things like that are, um, are, are better. And so I think that, um, prototyping and coming up with good game ideas that that I, I we, we touched earlier on the things that make an introversion game an introversion game and mm. chris we talk about this sometimes we look elsewhere kerbal space program we think is a great introversion game you know mm. it, it we could have made that game um in fact chris showed me a notebook where he had um nasa space sim you know <laughs> written down um and yeah, no, I mean, no disrespect to Kerbal, they did a, they did an amazing job of that game. Well done, squad. Um, mm. Everything did was brilliant. I don't think Introversion necessarily would have had the whole Kerbal uh, side mm. of it, you know, which I think is had a big appeal. But um, it has it ticks all the boxes of, it, of an Introversion game. And um, I think now that we know what this is, I think that more prototypes coming up with, with, with game ideas and then sort of critically analysing them and thinking, what, what do we think looks closest to an introversion game? And also, what, what are we excited by, you know? Because mm. if you're not excited by it, then there's no point in working on it. Yeah. Well, um, the, the two prototypes that you had last year, were they... Um, I got the impression there was some element of garnering 
public reception to them or the public response to them was was there do you think prototypes either for introversion or just as a as a general concept do you think they can be used as a proof of concept in a in an appeal kind of way so let's see we, we put these two out there which of them is most popular i mean is that that's perhaps a very basic way of looking at it but is there a kind of a Almost like a pre-early access yeah. um, vibe. I, I think that you need to be very careful about sort of design by committee or, or mm. trying to design something. I mean, this is, this is an argument as old as game development. You know, do mm. you make a game mm. for yourself or do you make a game for somebody else? You know, mm. if you just make a game for you, then no one else is going to want to play it. You know, that's the publisher's argument. The indie mm. argument is I make a game for me because that's the only way I can make a great game. And hopefully there are enough people like me out there to want to play this. You know, and mm. I think those mm. are the two, um, the two ways of coming at it. Now, with Wrongwire and Scanner, we thought, Chris and I both thought with our rational heads on that Wrongwire uh, would be the, the most commercial game, right? The better game mm -hmm. to, to make easier to sell. But Scanner did something to me, you know, it just made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Mm. And then when we showed it to the team, the same thing happened. You know, that the guys said, oh, we think Wrongwire is the, the best bet, but Scanner is special, you know. Mm. And then we took it to Res. Then uh, we got a, we, we had these little sort of voting tubes, you know, you could put badges mm -hmm. in, in these things. And we got three quarters of the audience voting for Scanner, you know, as the next game that we, that we worked mm. on. So mm. now what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't then objectively say, well, therefore, three quarters of the prison architect audience would, are going to buy Scanner. You know, that's a very dangerous thing. But mm. what we did, it, it, it just tested it to suggest, yes, there is an audience for this game. You know, people, mm. people have played the first 15 minutes and they have enjoyed that 15-minute experience. So, so I think this is... But they were choosing, you know, between two things. If you asked a different question, would you buy this game? I, I'm not sure that mm. how are you going to mm. how are you going to judge those results? You know, they're not something that you can that, that you can objectively draw conclusions from. I think you can make relative decisions uh, mm. by asking to choose between two different things, and and we use that quite a lot in Prison Architect. Actually, we we, we would say here are a couple of features. Which of these two features would you like us to work on first? And that's generally the mm. question we ask. Not which would you like us to work on. Um, it's generally which would you like us to work on first, and it gives this slight indication that that one might be a bit more interesting than the than, than the other one. And the mm. trade shows, again, you know, we didn't have these trade shows really when we were growing up. Certainly didn't have much in the UK. Well, consumer shows, I should have said. There were trade shows, mm. but oh. Oh, I still, to the life of me, even today, don't understand the value in those. But um, the consumer shows, you can stand right behind your punters and look at where they're getting stuck. You know, mm. and, and look at where, when do they stand up and walk away from your game? Um, and that's an incredibly useful thing. You know, you can pay tens of thousands of pounds to um, a usability company to try and give you that info. Or you can, you can pay a grand and a half and get a booth at rest, you know, mm. and just stand mm. there and watch the same number of people, sort of 40, 50 people, maybe a day, come through and play your game. And so you get this, this great feedback. Um, whether it's enough to give you any confidence in a, in a launch? I, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. But uh, I think probably, you know.
I guess this is the thing in because I know um, having spoken to some other developers who have talked about that kind of thing that that element of of um, of user tester research by going to shows because that is a great way to get your game out in front of people. Um, is there ever um, is there an element or an issue with uh, feedback in terms of either the Somebody might say they really like a game or they don't like a game but won't necessarily be able to communicate why or might feel, if they know they're speaking to the developer or a member of the development team, might feel slightly abashed at that. Is that Has that ever been the case? Yeah, of course. Or do you find people being very honest? Of, I mean, of course it has. You know, it, it's getting feedback from people, is honest feedback from people, is very, very difficult. Um, mm. You know, all of the psychological biases that, that we as humans um uh, exhibit familiarity bias you know if you put somebody in front of a a game for eight hours in a day they're probably going to tell you they like it at the end of it you know Mm. Uh, similarly this this desire to please somebody that asks you a question you know Mm -hmm. um i mean even something as simple as the exit polls right for trying Mm. to predict (laughs) you know the 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 the, um the american election and and brexit in the uk people were lying you know Mm. they, they had to be lying um, so it, it's very, very difficult, but you can, I, I think that you can, if everybody tells you something, so if everybody says to you, uh, I find this control system fiddly, you know, the control mm. system is fiddly. Mm. You know, if everybody says to you, I would pay $10 for this game, I don't believe them. You know, there are some mm. questions that that you know you're going to get honest answers and, and some that you're not. And we would watch people play Prison Architect and, and some of them at the end of the first chapter uh, would be in a, in a state of mild shock, you know, staring at mm. the screen, mm. having just executed that person. Mm. And when Chris and I w- were watching this behaviour at, um, I don't think it was called Resd in those days, or it might have been, or it might have been Resd uh, down in Brighton, um, mm we knew that we had something good, you know, because you could just see this stunned effect of people staring at their computer for 20 or 30 seconds before turning mm. around and being, you, you could tell from their demeanor that we'd got to them. You know, we'd done mm. what you want to do as a game developer, which is connect. Um, and, and so you can draw conclusions, but you have to be very careful of the conclusions that you, that you draw. Mm. Mm. And um, I understand that uh, there are elements, or, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand there are elements of, of subversion in wrong wire. Is that, is that right? Yeah, well, I think there are elements of subversion in, in Prison Architect as well, to a certain extent. Mm, mm. Um, I, I think they're what Chris calls games, games for programmers. So they're sort of system-driven games where the, the, the game developer has to create a, a set of systems and a set of problems that the player can then uh, use their own creativity and, and sort of engineering skill to mm. um, uh, deliver the output. Um, and that was, I think, fundamentally what Subversion was. It was, it was an attempt to simulate an entire city. So there was a huge amount of simulation code going in in all sorts of different areas so simulating uh one one of the ideas for it was was, was that you were going to hack you're going to be able to perform heists and you could mm-hmm. perform a heist in different ways so you could uh you, you could hack the building 
or you could blast your way through a wall. That was what we were mm-hmm. trying to achieve, sort of Mission Impossible um, style challenge. So in order to be able to hack the building, things like the lifts would have to have motors that had controllers on them connected to the power grid. So the idea what being that you could shut down the power grid down the road and that would turn off the elevators or whatever. You know, so, so every mm-hmm. system that went into the game wasn't scripted it was a it was a, a an engineered and designed system with with access points and things and that was the principle of uh wrongwire that the mm. devices that you were blowing up were these uh complex systems and you had a series of tools that you could look into to um diffuse that particular device mm. and that i i think uh when i've spoken to you previously you've mentioned that or Chris may have mentioned that that you describe the the canning of subversion as as this kind of volcanic eruption because it destroyed everything to do with subversion but left very fertile ground for things to grow from afterwards and that strikes me as something that can only happen um, as you mentioned earlier can only happen if you do stick together yeah. as a team and if you do if you are willing to learn and and take that time to actually to not learn from your mistakes necessarily, but just learn from experience. Um, that's. Are, is there uh, other things from Subversion that you kind of less, not so much in terms of actual gameplay mechanics or game ideas or anything like that, but in perhaps more intangible things that as a company you took the lessons from from that that four or five yeah, year development. Yeah, absolutely. Period. I mean, we didn't spend four or five years developing subversion there were other projects but um there were there were two there was um darwinia plus which was darwinia and multi-winia on xbox and there Mm -hmm. was subversion and both of them were similar scale uh projects and both of them utterly failed and nearly took introversion down with them Mm. and subversion was if you like chris's attempt to kill the company and Darwinia Plus was my attempt to kill the company. And so we've, we've both learned that, you know, I have learned that introversion is not the right place to do ports. So mm-hmm. uh, as we saw with Prison Architect, um, we used Double Eleven, who did this absolutely astonishingly good job of, mm-hmm. of porting um, a PC game. Well, it's, port's not really a fair word. It's reimagining, really, to, mm-hmm. to, to the console. And they do all that. You know, they, they did all the development. They did all the certification. They do all of the, um, the work with Microsoft. You know, they, they're, they're going to E3 and, and GDC that I don't go to so much these days um, to press the flesh with the Microsoft and Sony execs and, and get the coverage. And, mm-hmm. and that's such a healthy partnership for introversion to be able to stay in the PC area and uh, test out new ideas. And if those ideas start to stick, if we find that there's an audience for them, then we've got a sort of professional console developer who can bring that to the console audience. You know, and it's a much, mm. much healthier way of working. And yeah. Chris has learned, and I've learned sort of to be able to ask him if we came up with a prototype, what, what does the player do here? You know, mm. what is this game? This looks like a tech demo. And I'm not going to, we're not going to go back down a route of, uh, building a tech demo with no game. You know, I'm going to say to Chris, Chris, we need to see, and he, but he's going to agree. You know, he's going to, he's not going to argue mm. me. He's going to say, yeah, okay, mm. I need two weeks or I need three weeks or actually this is really complicated. I need a month. 
And it was like, yeah, fine, you've got a month. But at the end of that month, I've got to be able to play this and I've got to be able to enjoy it. And it's funny, it's the old sort of vertical slice that the publishers uh, came up with ages ago that we used to decry as being a ridiculous idea. Um, but actually, I think it's, it's pretty important, uh, certainly for introversion, to avoid that creating an environment without creating a game. Mm. But then sometimes creating an environment is enough. That, that's the joy of indie, you know. For more on games and game creators, visit IndieByDesign.net, follow IndieByDesign on Twitter, and drop by Facebook.com forward slash IndependentByDesign. IndieByDesign podcast episodes are released on Wednesdays. Our next episode features Roll7, creators of the Oli Oli series and Not A Hero. The music used in this episode is owned and kindly provided by Ben Prunty.